Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege uh, to be able to open up God's Word. We're going to be in the book of 2 Peter this morning. 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, as a church, for the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of 2 Peter. And 2 Peter is a short book in the New Testament, and yet it's a book that is uh, written to help Christians, I believe to encourage Christians. Uh, specifically, it's a, it's a book that's written so that we could have assurance of salvation. Uh, we see this in the first chapter, in chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And so the, the book of Second Peter, that's kind of the thesis statement, the big thrust of this whole book is that, is that Christians would have assurance, that they would have joy in the fact that they are united to Christ, that they are partakers of the divine nature, not just that Christ saved sinners, but that Christ saved me a sinner. And we, we talked about how the ultimate ground for assurance, if you want to have assurance, if you're missing out on that, the ultimate ground is the promises of God, the precious and very great promises of God. And so um, we talked about that. The secondary ground for assurance is the good fruits that he does in our lives. Because um, if, we know, if we have true faith, that true faith will lead to fruit. And so our, our fruit in and of, self, in and of itself is not, a, is not a sign for assurance, but rather it points to the fact that the promises are actually at work in our lives. The promises actually are working. We actually believe in them. And that leads to the question, well, how do, can you trust the promises of God? And uh, we, we see that at the end of chapter 1, that, that God gives his, um, his trustworthy word to us, uh, so that we would know and, and understand and, and, and believe in his promises. And then we get to chapter 2, uh, that, that takes a, that instead of trying to say this is where the promises are, chapter 2 helps us understand where the promises are not. How, how, can, you, how can you know not, what not to buy into um, in order to have assurance? Now, every the couple things that I need to say about this. Um, every week when you come here, I don't know if you're going to be here, if you're going to come down with, with flesh-eating virus or something. I, I, I don't know. And so when you show up here on Sunday morning, that's God's providence. So the fact that you are here hearing this sermon is God's providence to you, that you would hear this specific sermon. So if, you, if this sermon cuts and grates, you take that up with him. And that's important every week to recognize that this sermon, this text that is here, is, is God's design that we would hear this, and if we don't know him, that we would come to faith, and if we do know him, that we would grow in our faith. It's true every week, that's especially true this week, that this is God's design that we would hear this text today. Because every week, well, not every week, most weeks, um, at the beginning of the week, I'll text the elders and say, hey, this is the sermon text that we're going to be talking about um, do you guys have any thoughts about that sermon? It's a good way to, for me to just to see what the other elders see. They often see things that I don't, and uh, they often help me write the sermon. It's great. And one of the elders, who will remain nameless, said to me, I'm glad I don't have to preach this text. <laughs> so, um, this is a hard text, uh, but it, I believe this is a text that if, if we read it humbly and submissively, if we come to it wanting to know what God has for us, if we come to it wanting to know, understand it, to heed its warning, um, there's much, much to be had for those who love Jesus. So if you look with me, chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves a swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, 
If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who, gained, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Father in heaven, this is a a hard text to hear, hard text to preach, but it's in your word. And I believe it's in your word for our joy that we would know and rejoice in your Son. Father, would you help us to receive what is here, to cherish it and to nourish it, to understand it, that we might grow into his image. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The more that I study church history and the more that I grow as a pastor, the longer that I'm a pastor... Uh, the more that I see that there's really two basic errors, um, two basic heresies that undergird all the others. In fact, um, I think these heresies tend to be so fundamental that if somebody makes them, they'll twist their understanding of who God is and their understanding of, of what the gospel is to fit that heresy rather than um, the not. And so the two heresies, we, we might say, and it's the two heresies that the New Testament again and again and again calls out, are what we might say legalism and, and license. So legalism. And what we see with legalism is, is the desire that, um, or, or the, the, the belief that I can earn my way to heaven, that I can be good enough, that Jesus was just only a moral example for me. And if I just uh, try to imitate all that he is, that I can really be uh, as righteous as him and God will approve me. And uh, some of the weirdest, strangest, most bizarre heresies of the early and modern church are, are, are made up to justify that view. You, if you look at some of what the, the strangest, most bizarre, weird things out of science fiction movies, it seems like, that, that people in the early church came up with, um, it was to justify legalism. And Peter is not a legalist. As we saw a couple weeks ago, actually, Peter starts off his letter by telling us, here's how you grow. How, how do you add to your faith virtue and how do you add to your virtue godliness? Well, you don't forget that you are forgiven of your sins. Uh, Peter, Peter knows that if you're going to grow as a Christian, it has to start with grace. It has to start with justification. It has to start with the precious and very great promises of God. 
that we cannot mix up law and gospel. So Peter is not a legalist, but neither is Peter a libertine. And this passage is written to warn the Christians, warn Christians against the error of antinomianism or, or libertinism or licentiousness. In other words, if, if Peter is not a Pharisee on the one hand, he's also not a tax collector on the other. That Peter recognizes that we must have an appropriate understanding of law and gospel and gospel and law if we're to walk according to the ways of the Lord. And so in, in this sermon, here's what I, I, I want to show you. I, I want to show you that there is a freedom that leads to slavery. A, a freedom that leads to slavery. A freedom that enslaves. But there's also a slavery that leads to freedom. There's also a slavery that leads to freedom. There's, there's a slavery that frees. So there's freedom that enslaves and there's slavery that frees. And I believe when we understand these two things appropriately, our joy in Christ will increase. So what I want to do real fast, I just want to give you, a, there's a ton in this passage, in these 22 verses, and I want to give you a quick overview, and then I want to draw together some thoughts about these things. So what we see in the first three verses is Peter defines who these false teachers are and what they're doing. And he says they bring in destructive heresies, by appealing to that, that thing in all of us that wants to kick against the laws of God, that wants to kick against the goad, that doesn't want to obey the commands that God has. There's, there's something in all of us, there's something in each one of us that has never gotten over our inner toddler, okay? Well, there's something in each one of us that's just never quite graduated but behind to being obedient and to being children who listen. There's something in all of that. We, 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 we just... We, we struggle when God's authority is over us. And the way that false teaching often works is it appeals to that side of us. It appeals to that side of us that, that, that wants to not obey the law of God. And then in verses 4 all the way down through 16, uh, Peter gives us examples. Examples on the one hand of faithfulness under trial and persecution. So we see, for example, the example of Noah. We see the example of Lot. We see the example of the righteous angels, even, who, who are willing to undergo persecution um, and who are not willing to give in to these heresies. But then he also gives us examples of people who do fall into this error. So we see the angels that fell at the beginning of time. We, we see the, the generation that was destroyed in the flood. We see the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We even see Balaam, the son of Beor. And Peter in these sections is trying to give us examples on the one hand of righteousness and on the other of license. Then in, down in verses 17 through 19, Peter summarizes everything that he's saying. In fact, verse 19, I think, is kind of the thesis uh, statement in the chapter. If, you, if you're here, often you hear this. One of the things that I'll tell you is look for the most important verse, the most emphatic verse in the whole chapter. And verse 19 is the most important verse in the section. It, it's kind of where he states what he wants to say so clearly about false teachers. So he summarizes this up, and he, he talks about how these false teachers promise a freedom that leads to slavery. And then in verse 20 down through 22, uh, we see that he gives us a warning. A warning not to fall into this way. And so we see in all of this that Peter is warning us against uh, buying into this freedom that will lead to slavery. Now, one thing that I think would be helpful about this passage is to get some broad comments, because there's a lot of complexity here, and, and there's a lot of things going on in this chapter, and yet I think that there's some things that actually hold this chapter together and unite it. So I want to I give you guys three, three things that go into the error of lawlessness. Three, three big ideas that go into the error of lawlessness, or of license, I'm sorry. And the first one is lawlessness. We see that with the example of uh, where Lot, he says that he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so the idea of license is really lawlessness. It's a, it's a lack of uh, respect and reverence for the law of God. Now, if you read through this chapter, you can find all 10 of the Ten Commandments. 
fact, all ten of the Ten Commandments are things that are committed by um, are committed by the, these these errors. So let's do that. Commandments one and two are that you should have no other gods before the Lord, and that you should not make any graven images. We see very clearly that is violated right off the bat when it says they deny the master who bought them. They worship another master of their own making. They, they, they set up an idea of who Christ should be rather than their own master. Commandment number three is that um, we should not dishonor the name of the Lord our God, that we shouldn't blaspheme. And again, we see this in verse two right off the bat, that because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. We'll come back to commandment four in a second. Commandment five is that we should honor our parents. And, and really, that's about more than honoring only our parents. It's about honoring all the authority that God has set up in our lives for our good. And, and we see in verse 10, they despise authority. In fact, they are bold and willful as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Commandment number six, of course, is that we should not murder. And here we see that he is drawing on the Proverbs when he says, um, when he says in verse 8, um, lost my spot, uh, when he says in verse 18 that they entice by the passions of the flesh, that, that they love to swallow them up. This sounds a lot like what the book of Proverbs chapter 1 says, my, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. Commandment number seven, of course, is that we should not commit adultery. And this error is clear in verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery. Commandment number eight is we ought not steal. And we see in the error of Balaam, that he loved gain from wrongdoing. Commandment number nine is that we ought not lie, that we should speak the truth in love. And yet we see here that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And of course, the 10th commandment is that should not, we should not covet. And of course, we see that greed, that they, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, that their souls are trained for greed. Now, when it comes to commandment number four, the the fourth commandment, that we should honor the Sabbath day that the Lord has given us, part of that means, part of that means that we should, um, that there are things that we do on the Lord's day. And in the new covenant, one of the things that we do is we take communion. And we take, uh, and in the early church, this was often called a love feast. In fact, in the early church, they would have a whole meal, three-course meal, and then they would eat communion. They would take the communion meal as kind of the the sum, the consummation of that communion meal. And we see this, for example, in Acts twenty-seven it says, "On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread." And again in Jude twelve. And if you don't know, Jude and Second Peter are very closely related. Peter's probably plagiarizing large parts from Jude. Not really. He's probably just drawing on it. But it, in Jude twelve, it says, "These are hidden reefs at your love feasts." as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. And we see here that those who fall error in license revel in their deceptions while they feast with you. I believe that that word for feast, that idea of feasting together, I don't think a, a Christian in the first century would have heard that and not thought of the Lord's Supper. So what we see here in the, in the error of license is that it, it, it's lawless. There's no respect for, for the laws that God has set down for our flourishing and for our good. We, we also see in the error of license, in addition to that, we see that it is driven by desire. It, it's much like what Paul says in Philippians uh, 3.19 that their God is their belly. We see this in all throughout this whole chapter. See, in, in verse 2, it says they follow their sensuality. In verse 3, it says, in their greed, they exploit you with false words. It says in, in verse 7, if he rescued light, a righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. 
we see is in verse 10, they indulge in the lust of defiling passion. We, we see this in verse 12, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. That license is driven by unrestrained desire. License is driven by a lack of self-control. License is driven by people who cannot say no to themselves. By, by people who are driven by their impulses. And false teaching loves to deceive, loves to tell someone this is good. Give in to your lust, give in to your desires, give in to your impulse, give in to your passions. Which is why it says that they revel in their deceptions. It says they have eyes full of adultery, that they are insatiable for sin, that they entice unsteady souls, that they have hearts trained in greed. In the example of Balaam, he loves gain from wrongdoing. He knows it's wrong to sin. He knows that what he's doing is wrong, but he loves the gain that comes from it. That it's driven, license is driven by unrestrained desires. And finally, perhaps ultimately, license is driven by pride. License is driven by pride. It says that they indulge in the lust of defiling passion and they despise authority. It says that in verse 10 again, it says that they are bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. That's a phrase for the church. Christians' license is driven by pride, which means that anyone here, anyone in this room, Anyone in this room can fall prey to this, desire, uh, this error. And this error, license, promises freedom. It promises freedom, but it leads to slavery. It promises that somebody can be released, that someone can find joy and peace and happiness, that their life can be full. And it only leads to slavery. It only leads to corruption. I was, uh, I'm reading a, um, Stephen King's memoir right now. And um, it's a great book, but not a Christian. He grew up in the 70s, so be warned. And one of the things that he talks about in this book is when he realized that he was an alcoholic. And he said, I've, you have to watch yourself now. Now that you know you're an alcoholic, Watch, you have to watch yourself because you, you need to keep control. And that he says the next thing he knew, he had added to his alcoholism, he added to it an addiction to virtually every kind of drug. That's the error of license. That's the error of someone who says, there's, there's freedom to be had this way. There's joy to be had down this road. And it only leads to misery. And here's the terrible, terrible thing. Here's the truly destructive thing about this error. This error loves to colonize and evangelize. So not only do false teachers, not only do false teachers say, there's freedom down this way, I found joy, I can find my happiness, I can find fulfillment of life, I can thrive down this way, and they themselves are slaves to corruption, but they want others to be enslaved as well. They want others to fall prey to the same things that they've fallen prey to. They want others to stand by them and to justify them. They want others to approve of what they've, what they've done. Is it any wonder that God judges these things? Is it any wonder that God judges these things? We see that the theme of judgment cannot be denied in this chapter. You cannot understand this chapter if you don't understand that God himself has judgment waiting for people who fall prey to this and who colonize and evangelize the way of license. It says in verse 4, just as one example, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, 
but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Is it any wonder that God would judge people who want to swallow up others in their passion? Maybe you're here. Maybe there's a, a side of you, and I really do understand this. It says, a God, how could a God of mercy judge? How could a God of love judge? How could a God who forgives sin judge sin? How could a God who is kind and gracious and merciful and long-suffering and patient how could he judge sin? And I, I can relate to that. I, I, there are many people that I love who, who do not know the Lord and who if they do not turn, this will apply to them. I relate to that. But then I think of all the people that I've sat in the ashes with. And I think of the people that I've known who've been swindled out of their life savings and the people that I know who've had their lives and families torn apart by abuse. And people I know who've been tossed into despair and anxiety by false teachers. I think of the people that I know that have been wronged in ways that most of us cannot fathom. How can you believe in a God who would judge evil? How can you not? How can you not believe in a God who would make this right? How can you not believe in a God who would punish wrongdoing? How can you not believe in a God who would rescue those who are in trial? How can you not believe in a God who sees the wickedness of this world and who promises, I will make that right? How can you believe in a God who loves his people? Who loves his church? Who loves his creation? And yet who watches it spiral out of control and does nothing? The way of license ends and nothing but judgment, and in nothing but slavery. And God will not allow it to go on forever. God will not allow this error to persist. And because he's kind, and because he's gracious, and because he's merciful, he will cut it off before it's allowed to have its full effect. And that is a promise. That is a precious and very great promise that those who are in distress can hold on to even as they see the world burning down around them. There is a freedom that leads to slavery. There's also a slavery that leads to freedom. There's a slavery that leads to freedom. Look with me at verse 1. Notice how these false teachers, it says that they deny the master who bought them. What, what that phrase is attempting to, to help us understand is that there's an exclusivity to this master. That there, there's an exclusivity to this master. And, and the phrase here, who bought them, it, it, on the one hand, it implies all the good things that Christ did for us on the cross. That he shed his precious blood so that we could be purchased for salvation. He shed his blood and died on the cross so that we could ourselves be saved. He, 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 he bought us at the price of his own blood, but he bought us for himself that he would be our master, and he is a good master. You know, five different times in the book of Second Peter, Jesus is called Savior. 
We see that in verse 1. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, of chapter 1. We see that in chapter 1, verse 18. I'm sorry, not verse 18. Lost my spot. Uh, Verse 11, sorry. The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that in this passage in uh, chapter 2, verse 20. Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that in the next chapter. We see that in the next chapter in in verse 2. Our Lord and Savior. We see that in the next chapter in verse 18. The knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Five different times Jesus is called Savior in this passage. And every single time that he's called Savior, or in this this, uh, book, every single time that he's called Savior, he's also called Lord. He's also called Lord. When Jesus is our Savior, but he's also our Lord. He purchased us with his blood, and he purchased us for himself. See, this reality that Second Peter tells us about is not only does Jesus buy us from our sin, not only does he give us more grace than we could possibly imagine, not only does he purchase us at the price of his own blood, but that he purchases us for himself. Of course, there's the old saying, what is something worth? Well, it's worth whatever you're willing to pay for it. What was Jesus willing to pay for our salvation? He's willing to pay with himself. Our salvation is worth that much to him that he would die on the cross for our sins. And yet he purchased us for himself. He purchased us so that we could be his servants, so that we could serve him and walk with him, so that we could know him. He purchased us for himself. He purchased us so that we could, we could know him and walk with him and obey him. And he is a good and kind master. He is a good and kind master. To be a slave to him is is true freedom. To be a, a slave to Jesus Christ is far superior to the freedom that comes, that is promised through license. After all, Jesus himself says in Matthew 11, at that time Jesus declared, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, whereas following after license and following after sin can only lead to slavery. Being a slave to Christ, being a servant of Christ, being bought by the blood can only lead to freedom. Peter started off this book saying, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, in the first part of the first chapter, says, confirm your calling and election. This is a book written so that we could know that we are the children of God. So that we could know that we are his. There is life to be had in serving Christ. There's joy to be had in being his servant. There's freedom to be had in that slavery. Because he is a good and kind master. Yes, this this passage certainly does teach a, a heavy topic. And yet there's joy to be had here for those who have faith in Christ. For those who embrace him and follow after him, for those who've received him and put their faith in him, there's joy and there's life and there's freedom. So I want to end this sermon by giving you 10 things, 10 things to embrace in this passage. 10 things to embrace. This is a heavy passage, and yet there are at least 10 things in this passage, I believe, that are worth celebrating and worth rejoicing in. Ten things, ten applications. One, embrace Christ. Embrace Christ. Embrace all of him. He is Savior and Lord. 
He is master and the one who bought us. Embrace Christ. Embrace him for all of who he is, not all of who we want him to be, but all of who we need him to be. Embrace Christ. Let us not be like these false teachers who impose upon him an image of what we think he should be like, who create a God in our own image. But rather, let us embrace Christ for all of who he is. Secondly, embrace grace. Embrace grace. Peter is no more a Pharisee than he is a tax collector. He's no more a legalist than he is a libertine. Embrace grace that Peter says that Jesus bought you. He bought you at the cost of his own blood. That's what he was willing to pay for you. He he bought you and purchased you with his crimson tide. Embrace grace. Peter's under no illusion that this is something that that we could resist. Embrace grace. Number three. Embrace the freedom of restraint. Embrace the freedom of restraint. If the error of libertinism, the error of antinomianism, the error of license is to tell you to run after whatever you desire, to take advantage of grace, The truth is that God gives us laws and restraints for our freedom and for our good. I I still remember when I was um, in Bible college many, many years ago. And and I I took this class called Life in Bible Times, which I was was not very good at because I didn't care for the professor. Anyways, doesn't matter. I remember he showed us these this picture of of Hammurabi's code. It's pretty impressive. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a picture of Hammurabi steel. And they were dotted. They 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 find these all over what is today Iraq and Jordan and, and the Middle East. You say why is that? That just seems like an imperialistic, um, an imperialistic you know power hungry king who's just trying to expand his kingdom. Maybe that's true in his case. But if you live in a war-torn, chaotic, despotic region, to have someone say there's going to be order and stability, to have someone say, I'm, I'm, I'm coming, and when I come, I'm going to give you a law, and it's going to bring peace, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Christians, there are places that you can go in the world. There are places that you can go. And there are no laws. There are places you can go and whatever you want to do, you can get away with basically. But when your house burns down and your children are kidnapped and you have nothing left, 911 doesn't work. Law and restraint, it's good. And it leads to flourishing. It's a good thing. It's a gift that God has for us. It brings peace and stability. Yes, Jesus is Christ, and he's also king. He's king, and he comes to rule and to reign and to bring his kingdom, and it's a good kingdom. He is a good master. Embrace the freedom of restraint. Number four, embrace authority. Embrace authority. If if, if the error of license, one of the errors is pride and it, it cannot submit to authority, then for Christians, we ought to embrace authority. Much for the same reasons, because God puts authority in our lives for our good. He puts authority in our lives to keep us from going off the guardrails. He puts authority in our lives to keep us from running off that cliff. He puts authority in our lives so that friends and family can come around us and they can pull us back if they see us wandering and going astray. 
He puts authority in our lives because He loves us. How cruel would God be to children if God did not give them parents? Christian, God gives us authority and it's for our good. This is so countercultural in this day and age. This is so countercultural in the world in which we live, which says that we don't need anyone telling us what to do. We don't need any authority. We don't need anyone in our lives. And yet Peter says, no, authority is a good thing. It's a gift from God. Yes, it can be abused. No one here is disputing that. And yet that does not change the nature of it in our lives in, in general. Embrace authority. Number five, embrace good teaching. Embrace good teaching. If the problem that is being described here is people are receiving bad teaching, it follows that we should embrace good teaching. And I would love nothing more than to spend my pastoral expenses getting you a book by a good teacher. We'll start with the institutes. We'll move on to the embrace good teaching. Find trustworthy people that you can listen to. Men who are time-tested. Men who will teach truth. Men who will teach hard truth. Don't fall for those people who are peddling nonsense and cheap imitations of the truth. Don't fall for those people who are promising you a freedom that can only lead to slavery. But listen to good teaching. Listen to good teaching. Embrace good teaching. Number six, embrace holiness. Embrace holiness. Think of the example of Lot. Have you thought about how weird this example that Lot is, by the way? I mean, if you read Genesis, Lot is just, he's a punk. I got four younger brothers, and I know a punk when I see one. Isn't it just, but look at what, how he describes Lot. It's just such a strange example, and yet it's, it's given for our good. It says, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw in her. What is that talking about? <laughs> it's such a strange description. I think the best I can tell, the best I can tell is that Lot was reminding himself day after day about the goodness of God's commands. And he was weeping because he saw people who were seeking after freedom only leading to slavery. It's very much like what Psalm 119 says, as, as our gracious intern pointed out this week. Psalm 119, 136 says, My my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Embrace holiness. Embrace holiness. Embrace, em- embrace the gift of the fruit of holiness in our lives. As Hebrews 10, 12 tells us, seek the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Embrace holiness. As 1 Peter tells us, be holy as I am holy. Seek holiness. Embrace it. Grow in it. Long for it. Cherish it. Embrace holiness. Number seven. Embrace evangelism. Or not evangelism, that's not yet. Embrace other Christians. Embrace other Christians. This, this thought about the love feast, I want to return to this thought. One of the things that false teaching does is it tries to pollute and dilute the grace of Christian fellowship. But that doesn't make Christian fellowship bad in of itself. What it actually means is that Satan sees how powerful the gift of Christian fellowship is in our lives, that that's what he attacks. That that's what he seeks to defile. 
That's what he seeks to neuter. So embrace it. Embrace Christian fellowship. I had a professor in college who used to say, give me two weeks alone in a room with just my Bible, and I'll be a heretic. There's none of us, there's none of us who can escape this. None of us who by ourselves can, can stay away from this. The reality is we need other Christians in our lives who can hold us accountable. We need, uh, this is why God gives us church membership. It's so that we can come along one another and covenant together and say, and say I, you really seem like you're going off the rails here. And I, I know that you don't see it, but trust me, it's there. Think about it. That's God's gift in your life. It's God's gift in your life. Embrace Christian fellowship. I'd say embrace evangelism. Embrace evangelism. Look in verse 5. This is, this is the example that Peter gives you of what it looks like to live faithfully. He said he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. In that sense, we're supposed to imitate Noah. That We should, like Noah, be preaching the gospel. We should, like Noah, be trying to bring other people into the ark. We, we should, like Noah, be trying to rescue people from the flood that is coming. We, we should, like Noah, be telling others and spreading others about the good news that there is grace and forgiveness and redemption to be found in Christ. That there is joy. In fact, there's more joy in Christ than there is outside of him. Embrace evangelism. Number nine, embrace warnings. Embrace warnings. You have, have you thought about how strange verses 20 through the end of the chapter is? So if the, after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's a warning for us. And it's a warning that is given so that we would listen. So we would hear that. If you read throughout the books of the New Testament, they are filled with warnings. Much like if you are driving in Colorado, and you should go to Colorado because it's beautiful. There are all these mountains that you can drive on, and you just look down, and for thousands and thousands and thousands of feet below, there's nothing but cliff. It's beautiful. And on almost all of those roads... For good reason, there's a guardrail that can keep you from plummeting down into the ravine. The warnings that God gives in Scripture are much like that. They're given to help us to persevere. They're given so that we would listen to them and we would hear them and understand them and we would heed them so that we wouldn't return to our vomit. So we wouldn't go back to that thing that we, were, uh, that we were enslaved to before. But so that we would keep and maintain the way of holiness. Embrace, embrace the warnings that God gives. Because they're for our good. And finally, number 10. Embrace hope. Embrace hope. Do you catch this? Verse 9, maybe some of you need to hear this this morning. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Oftentimes when we are in the thick of it, and we just can't see the sun, And we feel like our life is cratering in. We think, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how I'm going to get over this. 
And sometimes we think because we don't know, God doesn't either. And this passage would tell us that is a lie from the pit of hell. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. The Lord knows how to rescue his people. And if you're here today and you feel that you are in the thick of it, and you're just trying to get to the end of the day and you don't know how you're going to get out, you need to hear that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to save his people, how to work all things for the good of those who love him, how to protect them, how to use suffering and trials in their life for his good and for, uh, for his glory and for their good. See, the, the import, here's, here's where the rubber hits the road of assurance. The reason it's important to have assurance of salvation is for seasons like this. Because when you just don't know how you're going to get to be, when, when you don't know what you're going to do tomorrow, if you don't know that God has saved you and adopted you and brought you into his family and justified you and given you a righteousness that is not your own and has made you a partaker of the divine nature through Christ, then you don't have much of a shot for hope. But if you can say with Paul, God saved me, the chief of sinners. Then what on earth can heaven or hell do to take you out of his hands? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us these words for our good. We thank you that you put these things in Peter, that you carried Peter along by your spirit to preserve us and to keep us, that we might not stray to the right or to the left, that we might not be stubborn, that we might not be hard-hearted to your word. Father, would you help each of us to embrace your son, to embrace his grace, Would you help us to embrace the goodness of restraint and authority that you put in our life? Would you help us to embrace holiness? Would you help us to embrace the warnings that God gives? Would you help us to embrace evangelism and the gift of Christian fellowship? Father, would you help us to embrace hope? Knowing that one day soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Amen.